The Feeling Sound podcast is brought to you in association with Urbanista. Urbanista is an online magazine for creatives where you can reach a like-minded audience of fellow urbanistas. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Feeling Sound podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Ilana Zygmunt. Ilana is a singer-songwriter who's also known under the moniker St. Catherine's Child. Ilana lives in Liverpool, which is where I caught up with her, but she grew up in Connecticut, in America. She found her way back here when she was 17, and she's been pursuing a musical career on and off ever since. She first came to my attention through a really good friend of mine called Andy, and it's the combination of her incredibly soulful lyrics and a beautiful voice that made me really interested in trying to get an interview with her. So when the opportunity came up to have a chat with her, I jumped at it. I went to see her, just off the Baltic Triangle, where I asked her if she could tell me a little bit about her musical journey so far. My name is Alana, but my stage name is St. Catherine's Child. I am a singer-songwriter. Um, that label makes me giggle, but I am. Um, yeah, I'm a musician. I live in Liverpool. International disaster is how I like to describe myself. <laughs> Saying that, then, you've got quite an unusual background, haven't you? Geographically, your parents were originally from the UK. You've got a lot of heritage from Europe, and you grew up in America. So talk me through that. You know, it's simpler than it seems, but when you start telling it, it, it kind of seems a bit complicated. Um, I have two parents from Liverpool. They're both musicians. Uh, my dad's family are Hungarian. Um, but yeah, they just moved out to the States with me when I was little and, and got comfy there. And eventually I decided to come back to England and I've been here ever since. But um, the accent and, and backstory confuses people. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a scouser in the sense of my whole family lives here and I came here a lot as a kid. But you'd never guess from the way I talk. I confuse taxi drivers. Talk to me about your mum and dad then. Um, they're both musicians and I know you grew up in deepest Americana, shall we say, in Connecticut, that area. So let's have a chat about that. It's funny because my genre that I grew up around was not Americana in the slightest. My mom makes dance music um, and my dad was a session guitar player, so he kind of did whatever came through the door. But um, at one point he was actually in a Van Halen tribute band, so I don't really know how that's influenced my music, but I'm sure on some level it has. Uh, but yeah, they were both musicians. My, my mom's a singer. Uh, my dad was a guitar player and a producer, and he managed her for a while. So there was lots of different elements of the music industry that bled into my life but my mom's dance music career you know took her to relatively big heights in the in the gay dance scene in the 90s so I grew up going to lots of gay prides and um, meeting a lot of really beautiful people uh, and sometimes going on tour with her which was quite weird um, but yeah the the music she listened to was a lot more folky but the actual scene I grew up in was much more like sparkles and glitter and, and dance music and then like weird spandex when my dad Decided to play Van Halen. <laughs> Do you remember any of the tracks that your mum recorded? Her stage name was just Abigail. So she had a hit with um, You Set Me Free was one of them, and another was called Let the Joy Rise. Just really, you know, fun. I can still sing all of it. Must have been so weird to have your guitar playing dad and your mum must have just literally been sat at a synthesizer taking samples and things. She was the singer, not less, less the producer, but um, she was more the songwriter. So she would go into sort of songwriting rooms and come back with things. And um, 
but yeah, very much a singer, like the most incredible voice and taught me everything I know over lots and lots of gentle time. And um, yeah, like I, I grew up falling asleep on um, sofas while she made records. And, and then when she did sort of transition to the more um, like acoustic music, uh, the band that she was in, you know, our, our my community growing up was all of her musician friends. So um, everybody, as far as you looked, played a really cool instrument and had something to say. So she was a band leader and, and a songwriter and just, you know, a huge inspiration for me. Where does this musical influence in the family come from? Is it, on, it must be from both sides. It's a debate in the family, actually. My mom's side is a very clear path of the voice. So, like, she is the singer and then her dad had a beautiful voice and then his dad was known for singing sea shanties when he got drunk in the pub. So, like, there's a very clear line on my mom's side of the singers. But my dad's side is a little more contentious. His father, who had to leave Hungary in the revolution, said that if he was able to have stayed, if the, if the war hadn't kicked off, he would have pursued opera singing, which was really weird because then when my dad decided to become a musician, there was some tension there because my grandfather became a doctor in the end. So I think there's a lot of sort of old school value clashing going on on that side of the family. But um, the older he gets, the more open he is about the fact that he would have been a musician if he had the chance. So I think... I think the wounds are healing over time. We're all starting to just accept that we're big artistic weirdos. <laughs> Isn't it strange how music does seem to run through a family like that, though? It's baked into us. I tried really hard not to be a musician. This is the other thing that makes me laugh now in my mid-20s was when, um, when I was a teenager because it was the family business. My rebellion against it, weirdly, was to like go to university and like try to become like an academic. I thought that that was somehow... It was like so backwards to most kids, you know. Um, I was writing songs in my bedroom and gigging them, but I, I didn't want to live that life. So I, I went to the University of York. I got an English degree and tried to be a, you know, an academic. And then literally the genetics, it was almost as if my, my blood moved me without me knowing. And I w woke up one day almost like sleepwalking and all my friends were musicians and I was gigging for fun. And it became like my job. And I think you are who you are. You can't outrun your genetics. You just, you physically can't. Is there one particular track that reminds you of being back in Connecticut in America? I grew up with a lot of those powerhouse female singer-songwriters. A lot of Brandi Carlile, a lot of Katie Tunstall, a lot of these like early 2000s women who were really breaking out and, and being songwriters in a new way. So I think as far as individual tracks go, Happy by Brandi Carlile off that first record. That reminds me of being in the car as a kid. <laughs> You end up in Liverpool, back in Liverpool. 2015, I think you, you came here, didn't you? So how, what was that like? I always had it in my head that I was a displaced Brit. I moved to America when I was a baby, so I was born in the UK. Um, I graduated high school when I was 17. I moved to England a week later. So I just sort of packed my things and bailed. I was like, I'm not American. Big rebellion moment. And the older I get, the more I realize it's okay to be from two places and that's no one's going to make you pick. But at the time, I felt like I really needed to. So I, you know, I got a little apartment in, in Warrington, weirdly, just outside, which is where my mom's from, and uh, worked in a pub and played open mics. So it was lonely and scary. And then I went to university in Yorkshire, so I kind of made some friends. But the first year was, was 
definitely a wake-up call in realizing that I was more American than I thought I was. <laughs> and yeah, now I love that. But at the time I was, I was raging against a machine, I guess. How much did that arrival in Britain have an effect on the way that you, you are as a musician then? Bizarrely, I spent about four years listening almost exclusively to punk. <laughs> like, the British indie scene absolutely captured my heart. You know, I was still writing a lot of the sort of yeah, James Taylor, Simon Garfunkel, like, you know, singer songwriter stuff. But then, you know, I moved to uni and I was living just out, I was living in York, so I was going to Leeds all the time. And this sort of um, DIY indie scene sucked me in. And, and the way that Brits, you know, take run down industrial spaces and make them really cool and punky again is so distinct and really inspiring and yeah I don't think you'd ever hear it in my music so much but it is a huge part of the way that I wanted to go and and build a life within the music world so that was those were the gigs I was going to predominantly and then you know going and singing my sweet little songs in my bedroom somehow <laughs> I'm a tapestry of a person um, but yeah that was significant and then the English folk scene too started to really bleed into into my life. I, I made friends with an incredible folk musician named Tilly Moses, who's now one of my best friends, and she plays mandolin. Uh, and her scene in the East Anglia folk scene, like the folk uh, is, like world out there, is so specific. Folk East Festival in particular was a weird little bastion for us. And so somehow, like hanging out in punk spheres in Leeds, and then going down south and sitting in folk clubs, led me to the kind of slightly weird hybridy music I make. Cause when you get tired, I swear I'll pedal harder. When you get tired, I swear I'll be a whole To see us dark, we lack the strength to swim. So stay with me here and turn the lights down, dear. Wow, that's an incredible mixture of different different influences, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, would there be one band in particular around that scene in Leeds? The the local bands were all just sort of, they changed names every three weeks and the members were modular. Like it was, I don't think any of them have even strictly survived. There was just this really cool energy of like not needing industry to make really cool stuff. And and it sort of inspired me to, I started working in a music venue when I was living in New York. I was working at the Fulford Arms, which is a really cool little punk venue. So I saw a lot of artists, but more than anything, it just sort of showed me that local scenes and, and small music communities, even, and this may be where the parallel to the folk scene is, is weirdly strong, is that like there is also a shirking of industry in those communities. It's just people in a room playing songs, enjoying each other. And um, yeah, that coming from America where everything's so industry heavy and everybody's looking for the break, it was really cool to see how much Britain really didn't care and was just really happy to, the music's good and the vibes are good and there's enough booze like let's just have a good time and that was what was inspiring to me so you play under the name St Catherine's Child I, I, I can't not ask what the origins of St Catherine's Child are I wrote my dissertation at university I, I studied medieval stained glass in the end um, and I just fell in love with a stained glass window in France that was commissioned by a woman which is super rare she's depicted at the bottom and then the window was was St Catherine and St Margaret uh, and I just, I love the idea that even that this little pocket of the world where there were women who wanted to tell women's stories. And there was evidence there that that there was a through line and, and that had been completely neglected, I think, in the historical record. So I decided to write a dissertation about it. And I found lots of other examples of 
women who bizarrely gravitated towards St. Catherine, and she's the patron saint of debate. And a friend of mine said to me at the time, only you could find a way to write 10,000 words about the saint of Malvi women. And I was like, if that's my legacy, I'm so fine with that. So I figured I'd make it my legacy professionally as well. A thousand years later, I'm still a woman who looks up to this figure of, of speaking her mind and, and being brave. So I'm her child in a way, spiritually, you know. Whereabouts is that church? It's in France. It's in Chartres. It's called the, uh, it's, I think it's Bay 16 in Chartres Cathedral. Um, yeah. What does music actually mean to you? I think growing up around it, more than anything else to me, it means community. Like, I didn't associate it so much with the sonics even as a child. It was, music to me was the method by which my family made friends. And the people that were coming in and out of our lives and, and the, the structures that we grew up within were all musical. So when I started making music, it was almost less about the music and more about the people. I knew that they, I'd, I'd be quite likely to get along with musicians. It's the only people I'd ever really spoken to. And... You know, every time I, I hit a bit of a wall personally or professionally, it's it's the people that really help help me out. So it's a community thing for sure. It's it's the the vessel by which I associate with the world. It translates me out there, I think. And also this is the only thing I think I really know how to do. <laughs> Could you imagine your life without music, for example? I got a really terrifying glimpse into what that would look like over COVID. I worked in a nursing home for a year, um and I loved so much about it. I, again, I love the people, weirdly, but I, I, within a year, I felt like my soul had withered like a plant without light, like I was just crumbling. And once lockdown ended, I, I just woke up one day and I was like, I want to sing every day and I do not care how poor I am. That's all I want to do. And, you know, yeah, you're surrounded by all kinds of musical things. And I, I do not think I could live a life without it again. It was, it was hard to do. We've spoken about your mum. Can't not talk about your dad. I know your dad was a very big influence on a lot of your musical career. Talk to me about your dad and maybe give us an idea of a track that reminds you of your dad. The upcoming EP is called Every Generation after the song Every Generation, which was for him. And uh, I wrote it right before he died, actually, about... Uh, we, we were always sort of the two peas in a pod in the family in a lot of ways. And he delighted in the fact that um, I feel like when there's a daughter, I do look so much like my mom, but when there's a daughter, everybody goes right away to like, oh, she's your little mini me. And my dad was always like, no, you have no idea. She's mine. Like there was a strange through line there. And um, he was from Liverpool and, and left at a young age. And when I moved here, I was sort of obsessed with all the things he'd done in the same sort of network of streets there was something really cool about that lineage and gigging in the same venues and sort of rubbing shoulders with people who knew him and uh yeah and after after he died last year the way that the community I got messages from people that I knew through sessions going I had no idea I was friends with your dad on Facebook we talked all the time about guitars you know I should have seen the last name but that's really and he really was just a huge a huge part of this world so I think my fascination with his life has led me to my own life. And I think that that's just how genetics work, <laughs> really. But he was the first person to say to me, you know, that, that we're all born the way we are. And um, you're, it's a better use of your time not to fight it and just lean in and, and just be, be what you want to be, what your body's telling you to be, you know. And he was incredibly encouraging in that way. But he's around me all the time. And that's, that's what every generation's about.
have been a tough song to write. Yes. <laughs> it took me quite a while to write, actually. I wrote the verses first. And then um, I always see choruses as kind of like, maybe this is the academic thing. I always see choruses as like a, the thesis, the argument you're making, because it's the repeated point. And I wrote these verses about with the every generation thing. And I was like, I have no idea what I want people to remember about this yet. And so I sat on it for like six months. And then um, the day that it sort of came out of my face in that room, it made me cry. And that was when I was like, and there it is. Like, if it doesn't get you while you're writing it, it's not going to get someone while they're hearing it, you know. I think I would literally have been writing that kind of song word by word, not even chorus by chorus. It would have just been so hard to do. It really was. Word by word is a good way to put it. It was a slow assembly of pieces. I think I knew I don't write until I know what this sounds so crazy out of context. But I, I don't write until I know what I want the overarching point to be. Like when somebody sends a song to someone and they say, I want you to listen to this. It's about this. I almost try and write to that brief. I'm like, what do I want people to say when they send this to someone else? What's the, what's the, the hook that people are going to get from this? And then once I have that, I can write. I don't write the other way around. So I knew that I wanted this song to be about, I knew I wanted this song to be about inherited things, good and bad. Um, and then I could write. But I had to sit and sort of gently assemble pieces until it was clear. We've touched on it a little bit already, but let's talk about your own musical journey then. When did you discover you had this passion for music then? How did it bust out of you and, and what was your instrument of choice? I was a piano player for years, first and foremost. Neither of my parents played the piano and I think they were really conscious and careful when I was little to give me something that was my own. Um, they wanted to find me an instrument that they had no attachment to so that I wasn't comparing myself to them, which was incredibly thoughtful. And, and as a little kid, I, I would sit at the keyboard in the living room apparently and make like major chords without knowing what I was doing. So I was in piano lessons, I was a classically trained piano player for years. But the fundamental problem with being a 14-year-old who wants to start writing songs is that you can't write songs about the boys uh, you have crushes on on the upright in the dining room. So <laughs> I was like, I need a private way to do this. So I stole my dad's like random nylon guitar that was really quiet and started writing songs. And then that annoyed me. So I pinched my mom's guitar and was eroding her strings. I was playing it that much. And in the end, it was very clear that I mean, my dad showed me some basic chords, but it was clear that I, I liked to write on the guitar because I could do it in my bedroom with you know, closed doors and write songs about being heartbroken in middle school. And that was when they gave me my first acoustic that was just sort of a little knock around thing. And the rest is history, really. The guitar was not my first instrument, and I still don't really write on the piano, even though it's the thing I play the most proficiently. That to me is like, it's still the classical thing in my head. It's like, the pieces are already written, but I write on the guitar. What's your favorite guitar look like? The Gibson Les Paul that is behind you is my father's, and that's my favorite electric by far. And I play a Taylor, which is new and lovely. Um, mahogany Taylor, which is mm, delicious. Andy Dunlop from Travis said to me once that playing an old guitar is like playing it with everybody else that's ever played it. Oh, I could talk forever about old guitars. My uncle sells vintage guitars as well, so I grew up with that in the house too. But my dad always used to say that um, <laughs> wood is alive and a guitar has to learn, the wood in the guitar has to learn that it's not a tree anymore. It has to learn that it's a guitar. And that only happens with time. And... Uh, there are some, there's a, there's a guitar behind you. It's a K harmony guitar from the Sears catalog in the sixties that I found in a random store in Nashville. And, uh, that thing knows it's a guitar. Like you can feel it, you pick it up. It's, it's been doing it for longer than, way longer than I've been alive. But part of the reason I wanted a new acoustic was I bought that Taylor brand new because I'd only ever played vintage pieces or pieces that were maybe 10 years old. 
I wanted for the first time in my life an instrument to learn that it's an instrument with me and I wanted to have like an imprint on it. So I've got the pieces from the 60s that have had, you know, countless Nashville session players, I guess, I don't know, playing it and then I've got the new things. So there's something about feeling like it's my, I'm the first person that gets to show it off to the world. So you're here now in Liverpool, deeply ensconced in trying to make a living out of music. What are you listening to at the moment? What plans have you got to play and tour, etc.? I'm such a weird person when it comes to what I listen to. Don't ever ask me to make you a playlist. At the minute, I'm listening to a lot of like 80s rock because I really enjoy uh, stuff that gets me out of bed in the morning <laughs> at the moment. But the um, the upcoming plans for gigs, I think there's a few in Chester this in, in May and then um, summertime we'll announce a sort of little tour relatively soon, which is quite exciting. What, what is it you're listening to from the 80s? Oh, I've rediscovered a deep-seated love for Hebe Lewis in the news this year. I love him. My dad and I used to listen to a lot of him. When they play their music, that hard rock music, they dug it with a lot of flash, but it's still that same old backbeat rhythm that really, really keeps them in the... They say the hard rock and roll is still beating, and from what I've seen, I believe them. Now the old one Kiss, if I'm honest. <laughs> I never used to really care much about, about Kiss specifically, but I don't know, something came on a playlist about three months ago and I was like, weirdly, this is what I need to get me through the back end of winter. Like, I just need, like, insanity. And it's helped, so... <laughs> Four key changes. It's just, it's, an, it's a kind of ballsy that I aspire to be in my life, you know. Let's talk a little bit more about what you're recording at the moment. I know that there's some plans for possibly a release. Yeah, so we've been building up to an EP uh, that will be out uh, middle May. And then we have a little B-side of beautiful alternative versions coming out in June. Um, that has been an adventure. But I recorded them all with my friend Alec at the Cabin Studios. It's just the two of us. We played every instrument you hear on the EP. We we locked ourselves in a, in a plywood box and saw, you know, waited to see what happened. And we turned out to make really cool things. So we got to master it at Abbey Road, which is insane. Um, and the label we've been working with, which is um, Enki Music Services, Cayenne Projects down at Strong Room in London, have been so supportive. They took on an artist who already had a team and a producer and didn't, didn't micromanage. They trusted that I was surrounded by good people and just let me make music. And um, I'm so grateful for that. So it's an EP that is the sound of utter musical freedom. And, and that's very rarely captured on tape, I think. Am I right in thinking there's going to be some alternative versions then of different tunes? Which ones? Everything except Every Generation. So we've subbed in Every Generation for Burden, which is my track I put out like three years ago. And I just wanted to sort of take another crack at it. Um, I thought Every Generation had sort of... I didn't want to redo that one. That one, that one felt good. But the idea being that we... We went really musically risky with a lot of the stuff on the A side. And then um, Alec and I were talking about how our influences in the sort of folk world and, and the way that I wrote the songs hanging out in these folk clubs, need, they, there was a whole other underbelly that hadn't 
come out in the studio before and rather than just being live versions we produced up folk versions if that makes sense so um, and tried to just use the weirdest instruments like on one song I play my acoustic guitar like a cello with a bow um, we made a theremin out of a Moog synthesizer um, yeah we we messed around with drum machines and and yeah synth pads and all kinds of weird stuff and um, turned no more pictures which is the big rock one on the front half into like a piano ballad on the on the back half so they're really different like it's not practically not the same songs but it was such a such a fun adventure in um just going back to our roots and feeling it out you know what felt good at the time you mentioned burden there and for anyone who's not familiar with your work burden is probably your best known track to date isn't it talk me through that track and, and what it means to you Burden's like an old friend. Every time I feel like I've outgrown it, it finds a new face for me. Um, but I wrote it when I was at university. I was really sick with what turned out to be mold poisoning from a, from a terrible landlord. It was like a crazy journey. And I realized that like I was experiencing the closest thing to, to you know, physical disability I'd ever felt in my life. I was having a really hard time walking and uh, terrified to ask for help. So I wrote this song about, you know, at the time asking my partner, but it sort of became a piece about my whole community just saying like I need I, I cannot do this it was the final straw and then um the decision to redo it on this EP was really funny because it was written about physical stress but over the year of grieving it again it developed this new face and it totally as I was singing it live became a song about asking my friends to help me shoulder the grief so now it's about something completely new and also somehow completely the same so I wanted to record the new version which is the the grieving version so um yeah it's special to me I love that people connect with it and and I've had a lot of people tell me that it's helped them ask for help which is the only thing I really wanted it to do so that's good can you share the to hear that new version of Burden in. One other song that I'd like to talk to you about would be I Know Nothing. I Know Nothing, um, again, recording the, the two different versions was so funny because the version on the A side we did with the drum machine and we made it kind of an indie bop because I was listening to a lot of that at the time. And um, over the years, it's become sort of like, it, I mean, the refrain is I Know Nothing, meaning literally like life kicks you in the crotch and you realize everything you thought you'd learned is crap and you have to get on with it. And it's, it's about feeling young and stupid. And then, and recording that version really almost had this like movie montage, girl shaking off a breakup kind of energy. And then we went to do the other version. And as I did the vocal take, I realized I was crying. And Alec, my producer, turned around and was like, why have I never noticed how sad this song is before? And I was like, why have I? I wrote it. Why have I never noticed? And it turned out that at the time I'd written it, I was also like going through a breakup and feeling really young and silly. And I completely tapped into a whole new side. So it's a perfect snapshot of a, of a of the complex emotion of a period of time, and I think it, the two versions are so different in tone somehow, even though it's the same song. Um, so yeah, if you want drum machines and movie montage of girl girl taking down pictures of her crappy ex boyfriend, A sides for you. And if you want a good cry, go to the B side. <laughs>
Where do you think your biggest influences come from musically? I mean, the term Americana definitely implies a certain geographical location, huh? Um, I've taken a lot as a performer from the books of like Bonnie Raitt and Linda Ronstadt and all of those incredible singers. And as a writer, I mean, I write a lot like Paul Simon and I know it's not an accident. <laughs> but those people who just have always worn their heart on their sleeve and just been really um, genuine and and had a bit of a reverence to the song, I think, have been my biggest influences. There's a lot of great singers out there, but there's not a lot of good, humble performers, if that makes sense. So, yeah, if you want if you want things that are easy to listen to in the same way that I am, just go straight to Bonnie and Linda. They're my girls. <laughs> we can't skip the opportunity to put a Bonnie Wright or Linda Ronstadt track in there, then can we? I think if you're going to do Linda, one of the lesser known ones off Heart Like a Wheel called Keep Me From Blowing Away makes me cry every time I hear it. And I think she does a beautiful job of, of singing that song. It's been an absolute pleasure to sit and chat with you. Um, thank you so much for making the time. And um, for me personally, I think you've got a beautiful voice and I find you really easy to listen to as well. So I think we're definitely going to try and catch up with you again when it comes to the album release. I would love to try and maybe sit you down and get you to play a couple of tracks for us. Absolutely. I would be delighted to. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Feeling Sound Podcast with me, Mark Reeson. And that was Alana Zygmunt of St. Catherine's Child. As ever, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our episodes. It's very, very much appreciated by us. And we hope to speak to you again very soon.